WFYI podcast brought to you by Bloomington, Indiana, an American college town offering food and drink, college sports, outdoor activities, live music, cool art, and good times daily. Everyone is welcome in Bloomington. More information at visitbloomington.com. Governor Holcomb unveils his agenda. Senate Republicans eye major tax reform, plus the search for a U.S. House speaker, and more. From the television studios of WFYI, it's Indiana Week in Review, the week ending January 6, 2023. Indiana Week in Review is made possible by the supporters of Indiana Public Broadcasting Stations. This week, Governor Eric Holcomb wants to spend more than five billion new dollars in Indiana's next budget on everything from education to public health and economic development initiatives. Holcomb Wednesday unveiled his 2023 agenda, the most ambitious of his six years in office. Holcomb's proposals include an increase of more than $1 billion for K-12 education. He wants to spend $500 million on his READY program, an economic development initiative he launched two years ago. And he wants to boost public health funding by more than $300 million. The next step? Getting lawmakers to go along with all of that. We think that they're not just legitimate, we think that they're needed, which helps us um, not be cocky about it, but confident that we can be persuasive. While Holcomb's budget proposal represents a major increase in spending over the last state budget, it appears that it doesn't quite keep up with increases in inflation over the last two years. Will Holcomb's ambition be rewarded? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel. Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien. John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers. And Nikki Kelly, editor-in-chief of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. I'm Indiana Public Broadcasting State House Bureau Chief Brandon Smith. And Delaney, from a Democratic perspective, there's a lot to like in here, yes? Yeah, there are, there are a number of good proposals, the things that have been ignored for the last two, two decades. So it's good that he's investing in public health, and certainly good that he's investing more in K-12 and some of these economic and, uh, and development initiatives. I just wish I had seen something bolder. You know, I'd like to see universal pre-K, for example. I'd like to see a railroad from Indianapolis to the airport to Chicago. I'd like to see something that really transforms the state instead of, you know, I'm glad we're catching up. And that's what we're doing with this. We're catching up to where we should have been 20 years ago. But, it, you know, I, I really thought with the amount of money that was available, I'd see a bolder proposal and there isn't one. Is this a bold proposal for the Only Ann Delaney could be underwhelmed by the price tag on this. Why didn't we spend more on a train to, the, it's to not, Chicago? It's not a, the price tag. It's, it's looking at how you can transform the state. The pent-up demand to get to Chicago in six hours, it must be addressed. No, we could, we could be this, taking look, airport this, this traffic puts, from this puts, Chicago. This puts historic investments in so many areas that Ann, among of all people, have been, have been asking for. But every budget is historic. Um, after, just for the record. Or, or not what they spend some it on. Stuff, the bottom line stuff is, is historic, historic not even, what they spend even, it on isn't is historic. Yeah, even but, accounting but for some of I that hear stuff. the Republicans say every year the budget comes out that it's historic levels of funding. If it's a dollar more not, than the last budget, it's historic. On the bottom line, it's always historic, of course. It always goes up, mostly, except when it can't. Those, those <laughs> two years <laughs> when it doesn't. Right, except the years when it doesn't. But look, there's something for everything. That's something for everyone in this budget, whether you're whether you're focused state government employee retention or making sure that teachers are paid sixty seven sixty thousand dollars a year on your way, as the governor said, to seventy thousand, which is That's which good. is the path that we're yeah. path that we're going on. I mean, incredibly ambitious, 
a huge price tag. Not, not by her count. No, not yeah, by her. Not count, by her but generally, but certainly of his of his agendas. How much is he realistically going to get? I think he he will get perhaps a fair amount, it, unless the bottom falls out in the April update to the forecast. And, yeah. and we should say all of this comes with a very big blinking neon asterisk, and that is we really know in the budget process that, yes, there is machinery that, that turns and sort of the conveyor belt sends it down the line, but until we get that, those new numbers uh, toward the end of the session, we really don't. We won't have anything that comes together in concrete. But I think he will get a fair amount of what he wants because they tend to be priorities that I think the state has agreed generally uh, are should be priorities or maybe not just priorities, are absolute necessities uh, because of the challenges we have faced uh, with education because of COVID. Now, you could say everybody's facing the same challenges, teacher but retention. still, teacher retention. You have issues public health spending, look at how documented uh, problems we have had as a state in that regard. Mental health, uh, you know, the, the crisis, mental health crisis in our, among our, our youth. These are all things uh, that have been crying out for attention and for funding. So sure, there are those who will say, let's, let's get an even bigger uh, surplus so we can give even bigger returns to taxpayers. But I think there's an acknowledgement that some of these things are, are, they may look like big numbers, and they are, but they're necessary yeah. numbers. It, it did feel to me like Holcomb in, in, in his press conference on Wednesday was really trying to have an eye towards trying to please the people he's going to have to get yeses from in the General Assembly because, you know, Senate Republicans have been a little more hesitant, certainly, about spending these last few years, but he's saying... You know, the things that they're worried about, which is the pre-96 teacher pension fund and catching up on all these capital projects that now need more money because of supply chain issues and inflation. Well, we're going to take care of that with my plan, but also I, wanted, I can do all of these other things. How successful do you think Holcomb can be with this General Assembly over all of these asks? Yeah, well, look, I don't think he'll get every single dollar, but he'll get a fair amount of it. Uh, he definitely went ahead and included those additional capital costs. Um, I'd have to see a little more on how. I don't think he put extra money toward uh, the pension fund. It was a full. It was the full billion dollars that they put that's in the already, special session. Yeah, yeah. That's but he was saying it's the law. full billion, not, yeah. not not short of that. So, but the, the Senate Republicans seem really hung up on that. So I'm sure they'll try to find a way to do that a little more. Um, I would say the one area that people have reached out, and I've, I've heard a lot of good stuff, and the only area that people reached out and said, you know, they were hoping for maybe a little bit more on the child care front. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, there's, there's four and months higher to... higher education, too. Yeah, and this is just one proposal. Exactly. Yeah. Well, as we talk about all the money that the governor and others want to spend, Indiana Senate Republicans want the state to take a comprehensive look at its tax system with an eye towards eliminating the income tax by the end of the decade. Caucus leaders are proposing creation of a Blue Ribbon Commission on Taxation. Senate Tax and Fiscal Policy Committee Chair Travis Holdman says he wants the panel to undertake a two-year study of the state's entire tax system. If we had the opportunity to start all over again uh, with all of these changes that have happened economically and, and uh, demographically in the state of Indiana and with our workforce, how would we do things differently than what we have done in the past and we keep doing? Holdman says part of that goal should be eliminating the income tax within five to seven years. 
Ball State economist Michael Hicks says that's not necessarily the right debate. Just looking at tax rates, he says, has never worked to attract economic activity. Hicks says policymakers must look at taxes as the price you pay for good public services. The quality of public services play much more into the, the decision of households to locate someplace. And business decisions are almost exclusively predicated on the human capital supply side that's available. Session gets underway January 9th. Mike O'Brien, you know, and, and characterized the governor's budget proposal as catching up on a lot of needs. And I think there is a lot in there that is catching up to what has been chronically underfunded in this state. Keeping that in mind, is there any responsible way to do something like what the Senate Republicans are proposing? Well, I think that's the whole point of the commission, right, to, to answer that question. And I think Senator Holdman, is getting, he's getting a lot of attention, and he, and he should, when he, when he brought up the elimination of the income tax. But he's getting trolled a little bit because what he's really saying is, what he, what he said in, that, in, that, in the lead-in, um, if, if, if we look at the tax code and had it, no one agrees that the tax code makes sense, right? There was the old Mitch Daniels line, it'd be nice if we wrote a tax code that looks like we did it on purpose. Um, that's what I think he's saying. He's saying, let's look, let's, if we had all of this to do over again, knowing the, the, the interests we have and the, and the goals we have, knowing that true conservatism isn't just cutting taxes, it's using a tax code and, and writing it in a way that achieves the policy objectives and the, 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 the services you want to provide and how you want to provide them. How would we do that? If we could do it all over again, what would it look like? And I think that's the point of this, this commission. It's not just about hacking the income tax and moving on. That's not going to work. I think everybody yeah. agrees on that. Yeah. Is there some merit to taking a really comprehensive look at what is the best tax system for uh, the new economy? Well, if they want to take a comprehensive look, I mean, we have one of the most regressive tax systems in the country. So if they want to look at a graduated income tax, for example, or they want to look at uh, lowering the sales tax, which disproportionately affects people with lower incomes. Or what it applies to. Or what it or applies, what it applies to, yeah. to, that would be worth doing. But he said eliminating, eliminating. And the answer to the question is there's no responsible way to do that. No way. And I, I don't know how you'd fund. I know they don't believe government should do anything. But, you know, government does have a responsibility to provide education for K through 12. It does have a responsibility to provide police protection and infrastructure and these things. And they have to be done in a responsible way. Repealing the income tax is completely irresponsible. They want to look at graduating it. They want to look at lowering the sales tax. There are lots of different ways to look at it. But there's no way to take away the income tax and not make the taxing system in Indiana more aggressive. You know, Mike Hicks brings up the point, and, and I think this is becoming the new thing in economic development, is, yeah, we've done a lot of work on taxes in this state. We cut the corporate tax for 10 years. We're cutting the income tax for the next five or six or seven uh, if if the economy holds up. Um, but that's not what you really need to be focused on, he seems to say at this point, in trying to attract not just businesses, but more importantly, people to the state, right? Well, I mean, I think they're looking for wh why it's not working, right? Like, if, if, if it's only about tax climate, then we should be there. We, we have a favorable tax climate. Regardless of what people think, we do have low property taxes here. Our income tax is... is you know, Among right the in the middle of those states, and it's dropping. Correct. Right. Uh, our sales tax is a bit high, but we don't have local sales taxes. Right. So, but Except having here. said that, I don't see any problem with 
debate and dialogue and getting information out there, you know, obviously they can't just cut $8 billion and move on without, right. you know, there has to be a look at how you would replace that and whether, do you want to put that kind of pressure on one, basically one revenue source for state government? I mean, that's, that's pretty iffy. Complicating even the discussion, though, is the fact that one major tax source, not for the state, but for local governments, is enshrined in the Constitution at, at a limited way. So there's only so much we could do in terms of trying to really, like as Senator Holdman said, really start over. If we were starting over and re building the, the tax code as if for the first time. You really can't do that very well. We bring because, back the sure. auto excise tax, well, you'd have, which you've only, have to only yeah, yeah, you'd have to amend like the Constitution. Like we did the first time. Like, yeah, yeah, but, yeah, but yeah. What kind of luck do you think you'll have saying to people, well, we want to be able to raise your property taxes. That's what the trade-off is. Yeah. We, we cut yeah. property taxes before to raise sales taxes, yeah. and it was That's, yeah. That's the popular. challenge. And my quip about auto excise is only partially funny to those who were around yeah. following it 20 years ago, which is a small segment. So for the rest of you, forgive me my indulgence. But Ann liked it. No, the point is... You can't fault uh, policymakers for wanting to take the big picture. And in fact, too often, I think, elected officials. It is officials a bold idea, Ann. It is a bold that's, idea. Well, that's a bold idea, ideas. but you remember what, what Professor Hicks said. It isn't the tax code, it's the quality of life, which runs exactly counter to the notion that you cut the tax. And that is the thing, because, and, but to their credit, elected officials often are only worried about the next. Forget the next biennium, like the next uh, month, the next election. election. It's hard for them to think big or to take a step back uh, uh, leisurely, or not leisurely, but a thorough analysis yeah. of these sorts of things. So, so they get marks for that. The problem is it doesn't happen, unfold in a vacuum. You can say, if we could start over with a clean slate, what would we do? Well, that presumes that all of the problems we face as a state and all of the obligations we have inherited as a state somehow magically go away, too. We're still going to have poverty. We're still going to have uh, health problems and other afflictions. We're still going to have crime. We're still going to have a need for parks and trails and all of the things that do make it attractive. You can't pretend that those are going to get wiped out as well. So you have to play in the real world. And, if, and you're right, workers may say on the first surface, hey, I want to relocate to uh, Indiana because I will pay no taxes. But unless they presume on working from home and never leaving the property, uh, because if they get on the road, if they, uh, if, they, if they get murdered on the street outside the house, if they, uh, I mean, it's an ugly scenario if you basically say uh, that is your sole motivator, yeah. I would think. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question. And this week's question is, should Indiana eliminate its individual income tax as part of major tax reform? A, yes, or B, no. Last, well, not week, but last year even, we asked who should the Republican nominee for governor be in 2024. 8% of you said Mike Braun, 43% said Suzanne Crouch, 18% said Eric Doden, and 31% said someone else. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to wfyi.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Well, U.S. House Republicans are making history this week, but maybe not the kind that many would want. The House has spent the week trying, and as of the time of this taping so far, failing to elect a new speaker, with Republican leader Kevin McCarthy unable to find enough votes within his narrow majority. It's been a hundred years since it took more than one ballot to elect a House speaker, and it's already been more than half a dozen this week, without California's Kevin McCarthy finding a breakthrough to convince nearly two dozen Republicans to back him. 
Most of Indiana's Republican delegation has stuck with McCarthy, but 5th District Representative Victoria Sparts began voting present after a few ballots. In a statement, Sparts said her vote indicated her desire for more deliberation, describing the parade of votes as wasting time. Nikki Kelly, um, we're all checking our phones to figure out the latest on this. Uh, I think it's now we, they, he lost the 13th vote, but he's gained a whole bunch of those holdouts, including Victoria Spart, who, Sparts, who's back to voting for Kevin McCarthy, though she was never opposed Correct. to Kevin McCarthy, it's important to know. Um, but do people care about this intra-party fight? Oh my gosh, I think they care in the sense of it's just embarrassing and it just adds to you know every poll you see and people have lost faith in in Congress and this is just another example of why you know they're spending days and days and days just trying to figure out how to elect a leader and in the end he is he is flipping people and it'll probably happen later tonight and that he'll and get it today, then but then there's the question the of what week. did he give away to get it Everything. and you know that puts a bad taste in people's mouth yeah my, my, my first question was do people care my second question is how much if they should, how much should they care? How important is this, not just in this this moment, but for the next two years of this how Congress? How important is an elective democracy? I'd say pretty important. I mean, I think uh, Nikki's point is exactly right. The damage isn't just in, well, can't be specified, at, draw a straight line from a piece of legislation to this upheaval. This is about further erosion of the credibility of the institution and, frankly, of, of government as a whole. There are a lot of Americans who already have bought into the unfortunate uh, campaign line about swamps and, you know, that nothing in Congress is good, nothing on Capitol Hill is good. It should all just be sort of like our tax code, thrown away and start <laughs> over again. Well, I don't agree with that, certainly. I think it served us, our structure has served us well that the Founding Fathers established. Uh, and we should, in fact, be, probably be buying into that and trying to improve it, regardless of your political, your partisan stripe. So, when you have dysfunction and you have nobody who heeds what's going on anyway because there's this widespread assumption it doesn't matter, it's all some kind of farce or, or folly, that doesn't serve us well as a nation. Having said that, now down to specifics, if this is a foreshadowing uh, the next two years, and I think it will be, uh, not only will we not see any Biden agenda move forward, but I, I'm not sure I want to see the, the fight over, say, the debt ceiling and some of the other issues that could really have an impact on our economy far greater than any of the other things we've been looking at, yeah. like uh, just inflation and labor numbers and, and payroll numbers. Obviously, the last couple of years with Democratic control of both Congress and the White House, we saw a lot of stuff move through the yeah. American Rescue Plan, the Infrastructure Plan, the CHIPS mm -hmm. Act, um, uh, the, the uh, uh, Inflation Reduction Act, the Omnibus Bill. We weren't going to see anything like that with the Biden government, of course, again. But when it comes to those things the government has to do, are we in trouble here? We're not particularly good anymore at doing what government has to do, and this is, you know, part of the, and this gridlock's part of the reason. I think a couple of things. I have one thought, and then I have a developing thought, so there could be a huge blind spot on it. But for the first one, so find call me on it if there is. But the first one, the first thought I had, and we we have experienced this in Indiana. We had 50-50 House majorities in the 90s when they when it was 51-49, 52-48, both sides for a decade in the early 2000s and mid you know, in the 2000s. Um, you did see this. You did see a total shutdown of the process, a total total gridlock yeah, from both sides. Yeah, but at least they chose sides, their right? leaders. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. but, you know, well, but that, you took until, that took until Thanksgiving when it was 50-50. Yeah, and we had Republicans well, walking out. We had Democrats walking out and shutting the process down. Um, both sides did that. So, I mean, part of this is a consequence of 
a process that requires larger majorities than two people, because yeah. then two people become in that, like we experience, we've experienced this here, those two people become the most important and they understand it. Yeah, yeah the, we've these, seen that in the Senate. We've nine, seen that play yeah, out in the Senate. That, right. That's right. So right. the second thought I have is there's a time and a place for what's happening on the, on the floor of the House of Representatives, and it's in the primary, it's in the convention hall. It is not, it is accepting the outcome. It comes back down to accepting the outcome. 19 people can't hold, country hold up what another 201 in your caucus want to do. That is just... That is anti-democratic. Anti it's anti-democratic. It is they big government. Can, but, yeah. the, the idea that what that one of their demands was one member of their caucus could remove a speaker or stop the process, and that was one of their demands, is the biggest government idea I've ever heard in my life. One guy gets to do that. Uh, let me let me ask you this about Victoria Sparts, who said you know she was never again. She was never anti-McCarthy. She voted with him originally, then started voting present. Now is back to voting for McCarthy, and her and her point that she said was. She was just, this is a waste of time. Yeah. This should happen. Something had to change. Actually, to, kind of to your point, What's this should be happening just, behind closed doors. Right. Let's figure this out and then go do well, there's right. a, there's a way right to, There's a way to figure it out. And, and they could have figured it out if it was somebody other than Kevin McCarthy. You know, you, what you do is you go and you deal with the Democrats. And you say, give me this number of votes and I'll give you this committee assignment or that committee assignment or whatever. They did it in Pennsylvania. That's exactly what they did in Pennsylvania, and they could do it there. But he is such a trumpet and such an ideologue that he doesn't want to even talk to Democrats, much less work with them for the betterment of the country. And that's the real fundamental problem. This could be worked out. Those 19 could not hold sure. the entire Congress hostage if he had the gumption to, 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 to talk to Democrats instead of trying to sell his way into the speakership, which is what he's doing. He's giving the power away. He's cutting deals about who he will or will not that, run in the primary. That's all of it, that, though. All that, of it that's, is that's terrible. All, that happens on both sides. Oh, well. All right, Republican candidates are already lining up to run for governor in 2024. And now it appears Democrats are closer to their first official candidate in former state school superintendent Jennifer McCormick. McCormick was an educator, local school principal, and superintendent before she won a stunning upset victory as a Republican in 2016 to become state superintendent of public instruction. Still, despite sharing their party affiliation, she often clashed with the GOP supermajorities in the legislature over education policy. And during her tenure, Republican lawmakers changed the state superintendent position from an elected one to one appointed by the governor. Months after leaving the job, unable to run for re-election, McCormick changed her party affiliation, becoming a Democrat, and for several weeks now, she's hinted at a run for the open governor's seat in 2024. Tuesday, she began inviting people to donate to her exploratory committee, further fueling the speculation that she will become Democrats' first official candidate this election cycle. John Schwannis, is McCormick a good candidate for Democrats? Uh, well, these days, of course, uh, the phrase good Democratic candidate in Indiana is an uh, oxymoron, is an oxy seems to be an oxymoron. So let's... It's not an oxymoron. Oh, let's make... They may me, not be successful. Yeah, I was just going to say, all right. successful versus good. That, all right, good point. But they face a, 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 a hefty a uh, headwind. All right. Well, let me fin answer I'm the one. I'm for you, John. Let me answer the one that he asked. <laughs> sure. I mean, having said that, you look at somebody who has statewide experience, has held uh, office at a statewide level back when that office existed. Uh, superintendent of Public Instruction. There was strong thought back in 2019 and, and heading into 2020 that she would run for statewide office. And as you'll recall, when Eddie Melton, senator from Gary, uh, Democratic senator, was exploring a run, exploring a run she was uh, 
going around on his statewide listening tour. So presumably because of her office, because of this listening tour and others, she has contacts and, and invisibility. Um, so yeah, as, as Democratic candidates go, and education, and expertise in education, I mean, Hoosiers, poll after poll, that what's important, they say education, I, I hope they mean it. Uh, so yeah, I guess all those things considered, it's pretty good. Last year, we talked on the show about how with, with this cycle seemingly starting so much earlier than usual, with all these Republicans jumping in, major Republican names jumping in, um, is, do the Democrats kind of need someone just so that they can start getting their name out there uh, early too? She hasn't announced. She probably won't because now we have the, the fundraising um, uh, blackout period during session. But at least getting her name out here, is that a positive for Democrats? Yeah, I mean, they don't want to get left out of every story. I mean, we're all writing a bunch of stories, right, about the, the race for the Republican side. So they obviously want to be part of that story. I do think Democrats, I, I mean, for her to be a successful candidate, there are two sort of major things, I think, working against her. A, is that she'll have to prove she's got some sort of prowess in areas other than education. Yeah. And second, I mean, Republicans are real peeved. They feel like they were deceived, right? Like she came over and was a Republican, and then so they've got sort of a bad taste in their mouth, and they might use that to work harder against yeah. her. Yeah, than is this someone candidate. someone who's recently changed parties? Is that a benefit when you're trying to you run know, for statewide office? Uh, the Republicans are going to vote for the Republican candidate, whether they're peeved or whether they're happy. Okay, they're going to do that. Democrats are going to vote for the Democratic candidate. The, the, what decides this race is that group in the middle that doesn't affiliate with either party, who wants somebody who can reach across the aisle in sharp contrast with Braun and other candidates that they have out there who have no desire to work across. And didn't hurt Donald uh, Trump, by the way, when yeah, he was right, I'll, I'll, I'll go back too. to my first question. Is she a good candidate for Democrats? She wasn't a great candidate in 16. I know the lead-in tried to position her as winning this huge upset. All the statewide Republicans won, and they all won because Donald Trump won by 20 points, yeah. and, and it pulled everybody It pulled everybody across. So she wasn't like this breakthrough you know, candidate that people were really aware of. So she's going to have to really, and she, but, but she is well known. And this, you know, we, we have seen the education issues flip these statewide elections. Glenda Ritz did it. I don't want to sleep on it. Um, she could be a good candidate. She, she hasn't proven that yet. And, and I think Nikki's point's the right one that voters tend to get a little skittish on the party flipping. Yeah. But, but in, in a we, state like let's this, go run the campaign. Yeah. yeah. Like <laughs> yeah. All right. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney. Republican Mike O'Brien, John Schwannis, host of Indiana Lawmakers, and Nikki Kelly of the Indiana Capital Chronicle. You can find Indiana Week in Review's podcast and episodes at wfyi.org slash IWIR or on the PBS video app. I'm Brandon Smith of Indiana Public Broadcasting. Join us next time because a lot can happen in an Indiana week. The opinions expressed are solely those of the panelists. Indiana Week in Review is a WFYI production in association with Indiana's public broadcasting stations.